Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have Maya King. She is a friend of the show and she's been on the show before, so we'll skip our usual introduction. But since we last spoke, you left Politico and you're now with the illustrious New York Times. Can you talk a little bit about your beat and your assignment covering the South for the New York Times? What's that like? Sure. Um, So I'm on the politics team now at the New York Times. I cover the South as a region. It's about eight states. But the big focus for the last, I would say, nine months that I've been um, at the Times has been the biggest state in the South politically, and that would be Georgia. So I am now based in Atlanta um, and have really spent like the last several months just driving up and down 85, um, following a lot of the different candidates. (laughs) Riding dirty on 85, slow taking it easy. Shout out to the young bloods, man. I, you know, that's back <laughs> in my college days. Let's let's dive deep into your article that you did on Stacey Abrams. Um, but if you could sum up what happened in Georgia a few weeks ago and why didn't we see, I think I know the answer, but why didn't we see a clearly far superior candidate and Raphael Warnock went out right? And how did someone like Brian Kemp thread the needle? Uh, being vilified by both the right and the left and win convincingly against Stacey Abrams? Georgia Republicans saw this election as a chance to prove to themselves and the rest of the country that Georgia was not the really purple swing state I think that a lot of people believed it to be. And we can't really make any final, um, you know, conjectures on whether or not Georgia really did it really is still a purple state or a swing state. I do believe it is. But, um, you know, last or two Tuesdays ago, November 8th, was a really good night for Republicans. Brian Kemp, as you pointed out, was able to thread the needle while still being a Trump enemy, um, was able to galvanize the conservative base in Georgia to come back and vote for him overwhelmingly. He also had a lot of moderate conservatives in his corner, and he had a, a number of Democrats who liked his policies, who felt that he did a decent job over the last four years, um, and who really liked that he stood up to Trump and voted for him and also Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger overwhelmingly for that reason. And Democrats, I think, had a hard time finding a message that would defeat a popular incumbent in the Deep South. So what we heard a lot from Stacey Abrams was, Sure, Brian Kemp followed the rules, you know, he certified the election, but that's the bare minimum and that shouldn't be a reason why one would want to support him or elect him for four more years. Because her argument was that over the last four years, for low-income Georgians, Georgians of color, for women in the state, it, it really hadn't been a positive experience living in Georgia and that they would even be further um, victimized or that they would be really uh, in deeper trouble for the next four years under a Brian Kemp governorship. That did not quite stick, I think, with a lot of voters in Georgia. One, they might've understood it and I'm not going to discount the amount of enthusiasm and support that Stacey Abrams had and still has among a lot of Georgia Democrats. But again, I think going up against Kemp who was making a really strong economic argument who was sort of lionized in the eyes of a number of moderate Democrats um, and for uh, for whom, you know, a lot of people just said, my life has really not gotten that worse in Georgia. It was, it was why his win, I think, in one part was so decisive. 
This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. One of the things I noticed when just going back and looking at the vote count and bare minimum statistics was that somebody like Jen Jordan actually got more votes than Stacey Abrams. What, what, other than not being able to catch lightning in a bottle twice, Barack Obama, I think we have to really take a look at, at this sober. Barack Obama wasn't even able to do the same thing in 2012. He did in 2008. What was different? Was it the power of incumbency or was it just pure exhaustion of the phenom that was Stacey? Well, we've got to kind of look at the last four years for, for Stacey Abrams. I mean, she was really a celebrity more than she was a politician from 2018 to 2022. And she did a lot of work, of course, to turn Georgia blue, to help elect um, Senator Warnock and Senator Ossoff. And of course, when Joe Biden won Georgia, people immediately pointed to Stacey and said, this is, this is the work that you did to turn out people. But while Democrats were um, celebrating her, you had a lot of Republicans and even some moderates who didn't really like the fact that she was this celebrity candidate, mm -hmm. felt that she didn't spend a lot of time in Georgia focusing on the real issues closer to the ground. I think that really hurt her in the long run. And it was, I mean, it was hard for her to outrun her celebrity. That's not really her fault, but it was something that she really had to contend with that I think her campaign saw as more of a strength um, that ultimately was not. And you have someone, I think, like Jordan, who in a, in a pretty good year for, for Democrats running against abortion, I think is a large part of, of her success there. She's certainly not going anywhere. Um, she had a really compelling message saying, you know, the incumbent attorney general in Georgia is going to uphold the most conservative and dangerous laws as they relate to women's bodily autonomy. That was a, a message that resonated with a lot of people, though I think with Jordan, the one thing with her is that she just didn't, her, her message didn't get to enough voters. She was pretty unknown as a, yeah, as a state representative. So that's why I think she's got a lot more time and a lot more runway. I don't think we've heard the last of her. Uh, before we unpack the Stacey article that you wrote, which by the way, I suggest everybody read is one of the more brilliant comprehensive pieces. How long did it take you to write that piece, by the way? So it was really um, a lot of string that I and my colleague Reed Epstein had been gathering, just making calls and covering Georgia for the last several months. We were hearing the little complaints. We were hearing some of the concerns. And we wrote one story earlier this year um, in the fall that outlined some of those concerns. 
Uh, I think before uh, the timeline is running together. I believe that story came out before Labor Day, though, when when Democrats were talking to us to say, look, we really care about the Abrams campaign and we care about what she's doing. These are the things that we would really like to see her fix. Um, and then, you know, the, as we got closer to the election and shortly after, we really just had to sort of unpack our notebooks and say, what did we hear from people? Um, go back and make the calls to the Democrats who were kind of nervous about, you know, talking about this campaign negatively, who finally were able to say, look, this is where we think she went wrong. So I would say so, several months. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of Starbucks visits to write this piece. Look, <laughs> um, before we get to the, the meat of the article, two questions I want to ask you. One, what's the future for Brian Kemp? Um, you know, it's amazing that um, there are two people who I think are flying under this 2024 radar. Let's take the president of the United States out of this equation and say he doesn't run. But you okay. hear about Ron DeSantis as this next up. But I believe Ron DeSantis is more Scott Walker than anything else. But you don't hear about Gretchen Whitmer and Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp had what was a resounding victory in the state of Georgia, although it was only five, six points, seven points. I can't remember what the final vote total was. That was a lot in Georgia. What's next for him? And why isn't he being talked about on the national scene? It, it, other than the fact that it looks like all of his suits are just a size too big. I think we've got to look at, <laughs> I think we've, we've got to look back at 2018, honestly, to that point. Um, we can, I, I don't, I remember the 2018 Brian Kemp that Republicans were scared of, who had advertisements of him saying he blows up regulations, had a rifle in his hand and was standing by his pickup truck saying he uses the back of his truck to round up criminal illegals. That was an, Brian Kemp of 2018 was the far right of the right. Now the right has gotten a lot much further. So, you know, things look a little bit more different. Kemp has certainly cleaned up his public image and even sharpened the way that he speaks in public. So this is, and then of course you have November 8th, this resounding victory. And now the question is, well, what is Brian Kemp going to do in 2024? Uh, Georgia politics change a lot and it's, it's really not wise to like bet on what's gonna happen. But I don't think that he's going to leave the governor's mansion early. What one person, a few sources actually that I, that I, uh, that I trust have pointed out to me is that in four years when Brian Kemp's governorship is done, um, there will be another Senate seat that is possibly up for grabs for Republicans and John Ossoff, because that'll be the end of his six-year term. Oh, that's right. He went, yeah, that's right. And so I think that's one arena that they've teased. But, you know, Governor Kemp has always said the only thing he wants to be is governor of Georgia. And I'm inclined to believe that. However, I think um, money talks and people have their eyes on him. So that that could totally change. But I know I've kind of gone back and forth in this answer to you. I really don't know. I think also we're yeah, going you, to have you to You answered see... about as good as a Georgia politician because you, you just really yeah. haven't given me one. <laughs> I mean, look, if I had to if I had to say here's the most likely office he would run for in four years, I would I would I would I would not be surprised to see him try to challenge John Ossoff in 2024 or 2026. I think he will um, tease a run in 2024. I think he will. There's no downside to Brian Kemp visiting Iowa and New Hampshire and going out and being this kind of anti-Trump lane person to, to see if it opens up. But, you know, we shall see. And you told me for my next question that we have to hold off on our analysis on what type of state Georgia is, a, a blue, red or purple state until after December 6th. Is that, that correct? Yes, I would say so. Well, let's dig into this Stacey piece a little bit without spoiling it. What's the Cliff Notes version of the article? 
And even more importantly, why did you decide to write this piece? So we saw the writing on the wall a few weeks before the election. It was looking like Brian Kemp was going to win pretty decisively and that Abrams, (laughs) in contrast, would not miss, would, would not lose by, you know, 55,000 votes. It would probably be a much wider margin. And that came to pass. The Cliff Nose version of this is, is just that it's a different environment for Democrats in Georgia. It's a different environment for Democrats nationally. And Stacey Abrams was running against who was now a popular incumbent that she tried to paint as an extremely unpopular far right candidate. And that just did not really stick. She had the stardom um, of being sort of a democratic fundraising juggernaut who had her eyes on the possibly the presidency, as she had said in her own words. And she had run a campaign that, yes, was very Georgia focused, but was run by only really a small group of operatives who were unwilling to listen to outside advice from Georgia Democrats who had lived in the state for a long time Mm -hmm. and felt that the campaign was falling short in the way that it was reaching out to key constituencies like black voters and like young voters. And so that's really how we get an eight point loss um, in Georgia in 2022. But it's also fair to say that in analyzing Stacey without Stacey's operation, Raphael Warnock has no opportunity and no shot. Hmm. Well, I think they ran different campaigns. And I mean, just the field work and the cultivation of that field work, probably, I guess that probably leads into 2020 more so. It has a greater impact on 2020 than this election. Yes. And Warnock had and has more appeal with the voters that you need to win in Georgia. The moderate, independent, conservative leaning, mostly white college educated voters in the North Atlanta suburbs. It's not a ton of people. But the thing about Georgia, even that I think still makes it a swing state, I'll come out and say, I think Georgia's still a swing state because elections come down to the margins here. Brian Kemp won by a pretty wide, by a pretty wide margin. But uh, we can look at the Senate runoff that was, you know, really, really close. Exactly. And see where there's still openings for Democrats to make inroads. And that that's the region of the state that's really sort of fertile ground for those kinds of inroads. We heard a lot about uh, a problem with black men and Stacey Abrams, but this appeared to be more anecdotal than in empirical. Can you talk about the origins of where this purported issue came from? And what did exit polling and actual voting data tell us about Black men and Stacey? I I don't know if I'm reading it right, but I don't see the uh, actual empirical data backing up that claim. No, these these fears of Democrats struggling, of Abrams struggling to connect with Black men did not really come to pass. We saw her paying a lot more attention to Black men, she said, you know, in her campaign, if black men vote for me, I will win Georgia. That was a quote. That's a direct quote from her at an event specifically with black men. That set off a lot of alarm bells for us as reporters, because we were thinking, okay, are black men really the swing vote? Are they the deciding vote? It wasn't just Abrams who was doing all these events with black men. A lot of Democrats started paying more attention to them. A lot of Republicans started even Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp did. Brian Kemp did a lot of events with black men too. So I want to push back on that a little bit. Brian Kemp Mm. did do events with Black men, but I think it was a little bit overshot just how much attention he was paying to them. I went to some events that that Brian Kemp did, you know, public events that press were allowed at with Black men, and it was mostly local business owners, entrepreneurs, 
people who had sort of a financial stake in Republican leadership in Georgia read people who were already probably going to vote for Republicans, because there's always going to be a slice of any group, any demographic that votes for Republicans. And we just pay a lot of attention to black men as a slice of, uh, as that demographic that might. And again, like Republicans have opened a community center here in College Park, it's a black suburb of Atlanta. It's geared towards specifically engaging and turning out black voters for the GOP. That was a lot of money poured into an effort that only yielded, I think, 8% um, of, of black support for Republicans. And that's just on, that's an average. That's not an overperformance. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is, is I've known Stacey since, since she was the minority leader. And one of the things you could not necessarily call her as minority leader was a die in the wool, far left liberal or progressive. Um, but she was perceived as being more progressive and quote liberal than she actually is. And how much do you think this perception played into her performance? I mean, again, there was there's this stardom factor that her campaign did not push back very hard on. Um, but I mean, I, I wrote a story about her evolution on abortion. Abrams has talked extensively about how she was once really against abortion as a procedure and then evolved to say, I think that this is a choice that every person should have if they want to make it. She's really... Being a Democrat in Georgia is hard, right? I'm because a Democrat just, in South Carolina. Trust me, it's harder, but go ahead. Exactly. <laughs> Being a Democrat in the deep South, trying to make inroads in a state that has a really strong, really fired up Republican base that is willing to listen to anything that their leaders say against Democrats who are who might be, you know, you have your core Democratic voters who will always turn out. 
but then you have the infrequent voters, you have the, the new voters and the people who just haven't really received a message that gets them to the polls enough. Abrams had to talk about abortion. She had to talk about the economy. She had to talk about Medicaid expansion. Um, she had to try to stand in line with Joe Biden, but also not really because he's still extremely unpopular in Georgia. All the while, Republicans, if you're running for governor, even if you're running for a, a small state house seat or a county seat, you're running with a message in Georgia of stopping the Stacey Abrams agenda. Nobody really knew what the Stacey Abrams agenda exactly was, but tying that to unpopular national Democrats and this fear of crime in Atlanta and this fear of far left politics infiltrating Georgia, her campaign didn't really push back on that. In fact, they said, look, we're not embracing far left politics. What we want is Medicaid expansion or what we want is women's bodily autonomy. I just don't feel like people really received that, given all of the, the things swirling around politics in Georgia right now that I laid out that are also super confusing. It just didn't seem to catch enough fire with people. One of the more difficult questions I have for you, but I'm really interested in your answer, because I think you're uniquely situated by doing the work that you've been doing for the past few years. Unpack the hard conversations around race and sex here for me, because I feel like a lot of folks have tippy-toed around what people talk about in private all the time. What did you see on the trail in Georgia that gave you glimpses into how the role of race and sex played and how voters perceived and responded to Stacey? Hmm. Oh boy, how much time do you have, Bakari? Um, <laughs> Give us the thesis that you that you will use to extrapolate and write a, a more comprehensive piece. I mean, the truth is, Stacey Abrams ran as a black woman running for an office that no black woman has ever won in the country, in the Deep South, where there is an electorate that has never seen a black woman um, in in this high office but also, you know, getting so close to actually winning. And so I think there was absolutely racism and misogyny at work. Um, I can remember in my earliest days reporting for the Times and going to these Republican events, you would see Stacey Abrams' face plastered onto a cartoon pig. Um, you know, you would see things like uh, Joe and the hoe gotta go. That's a, that is a phrase that is used very widely in far-right circles. And the, the Hohen question it was referring to the vice president of the United States. There is an element of misogyny in that message. Um, and getting back to Abrams, though, I just think, you know, there's, there are things that in the Deep South in particular, the legacy of racism is still very much alive. Um, and for a, for a Black woman running for this office, that was certainly something that she had to contend with and something that her campaign was not shy about either. I don't think we saw, you know, blatant racist messages in terms of what the candidates were talking about. We didn't see that from Republicans, but it certainly could have been in the back of people's minds. I'll be honest, though, where I really see um, the role that race plays more is actually in the Senate race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Just oh, no, no, you just you got it. I need more than one sentence on that, because this is a whole nother episode because you got two black men running. So go of yeah. faith. Yeah. But you have one who's grounded in um, in the church and who is a, a religious leader in one of the most iconic churches really in the country. And you have one who really got his start and finds his stardom in Georgia through his athletics. 
And so they represent these two sides of, of, um, of really being black in the South, but also just being black in America. And a lot of people have pointed this out that Herschel Walker in many ways represents a lot of the stereotypes that people, that a lot of white Southerners believe about African-Americans and black men specifically. Um, I wrote about the Jamal Bryant um, sermon saying, you know, this is someone who essentially has taken to just listening to anything that his advisors, most of them are white, will say and do. And that's exactly what he would do in the United States Senate is the argument that Brian is making. Um, but it's, it's, it's really, it's, this is such an interesting time again for black politics and particularly in Georgia, where you have candidates who represent all different facets of the black political experience on top of the ticket for both Democrats and Republicans. And for Abrams again, I don't know if the reason why she lost is because she's a black woman. I don't think that's true. I think it has more to do with strategy and just with the national environment, but we can't discount the way that she had showed the way that she couldn't control as a black woman. She showed up in these political spaces and the way that people would receive her. Uh, one of my last questions that I have for you before just a, a big 50,000 foot short question for you is we see that image in Eric Erickson, um, who we were on TV a lot in the lead up and we're still on TV a lot together um, talking about Georgia. And he always calls me Bacardi, which, by the way, this is me off. But one of the things they talked about was the largest force error that she made was sitting in a classroom with her mask off and all the students with their mask on at the elementary school. Was that an unforced error and, you know, not getting enough um, support from local electeds? Uh, were there any unforced errors that you think ultimately led to her defeat? Like, why should someone with a national profile care if the sheriff from DeKalb County is endorsing her or not? Like, do these things add up and matter over time? And did you see them add up and matter in Georgia? They do matter and they do add up because it's not just, you know, whether that person is going to cut an ad for you or stand up and say, you know, I, you know, I raised my hand, I support Stacey Abrams. It's how many people that person then goes to in their community. And that was what I heard so much from county and local elected officials and community leaders. They were saying, we are still going to support Stacey Abrams, but she didn't do enough outreach to us, or she didn't take the advice that we tried to give her. Or when we invited her to our events, her campaign cited her schedule and didn't come. But we remember four years ago when she was more than happy to come to these events, or we can name other candidates who have come to these events. And so the net um, uh, outcome of, those, of all of those moves is, we're still going to support you, but we're not going to lead the community get out the vote drives. We're not going to go and knock on doors for you. We're not going to go and encourage everybody else in our communities or in our groups or in our functions to go and support you. We're not enthusiastic. And that matters on the ground. That's how you close the gap in these really close races. And she, again, I will say, ran a different campaign from Raphael Warnock. But what we also see in this really close runoff race, Senator Warnock is in every single corner of the state and has specifically reached out to a lot of community members particularly in these crucial last few weeks, um, community leaders rather, in these last few weeks of the runoff. I mean, this is the stuff that really matters at the margins and Georgia, um, at least in this race, is very much still a margins game. Now, to Erickson's point though about the, the mask, I'm, I just don't see how that's the thing that you know, caused her to lose the race. And I, I, I don't think that that's, I mean, it was certainly not a great, it wasn't great optics, but 
I mean, that happens with every campaign. You, you do things and people kind of, you know, ding you on it. Um, the big unforced error, though, that, that I thought, you know, really did hurt her was early on the speech that admittedly, you know, was was taken out of context, but still was, you know, not not really a great look for her. And that's the speech that she gave to um, a Democratic fundraising gala talking about Georgia's mass incarceration rates, talking about Georgia's uh, maternal mortality rates and saying, you know, I'm tired of Republicans saying that Georgia is the best place to do business when it's the worst place to live. And so in the context of the policies and the communities that these policies impact, Georgia is not a great place to live. But in the context of your running for governor and wanting to galvanize a crucial slice of conservative and moderate voters who live in the state saying it's the worst place to live. And then that clip being amplified over and over by this Republican ad making machine that had millions of dollars to do that really didn't work out for her. And I think that was a pretty big unforced error. So last question for you, what's next for Stacey Abrams? Do you think there's space for her in the national democratic apparatus after this race? What does she want to do? I, and I firmly believe that one of the part of the happiest I've seen Stacey was in between her loss and her announcing for running for governor again. She mm -hmm. was out giving speeches. She was writing books. She was making money, a living, something she hadn't really been able to do while she was in the state house. And she had a glow about her. Um, so what do you think she's going to do? Be secretary of HHS or something, or go back <laughs> to all these happy? questions about what these people are going to do. I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, Stacey Abrams can do whatever she wants, probably outside of Georgia at this point. <laughs> um, so she I has, she has 49 states to choose to do whatever she wants to do. I've heard so many theories on this. Some people have said, what if she goes back to Yale to teach for a while? What if she goes back to write books? Um, what is the future of Fair Fight also? You know, does it go to states outside of Georgia to try to create the same machine that it did here um, in other places across the South? Um, and if that does happen, what is her role with Fair Fight? It's been another question. Um, you know, there's also, of course, the the involvement that she could have at the party level if she wants to do more with the National Democratic Party. That's that's I'm, I'm sure a lane that's open for her. And I Please, don't God, think don't, this do, is... don't do that, Stacey. It's a terrible gig. <laughs> Thank, thankless gig to say that. Shout out Jamie Harrison. Uh, and I, I mean, you know, I, I, the, the, the lane we have not heard the last of Stacey Abrams. The woman still remains in, in, a, a, a brilliant political mind. And I think that's as a reporter, just following her, I can say she has ideas on how to turn people out. And that is valuable to Democrats at this stage. And so, I mean, she could run for, she could pop up and run for office again. I would not be surprised. I don't know where that would be and what that would look like, but I know that she's someone who always, who has ne who never backs down. So I, I really don't think we've, we've seen or heard the last of her here. I get into it with enough journalists and people who claim to be journalists online all the time about their work product and not doing the due diligence and putting forth the effort. But I can honestly say when I read the byline that says my king, that is something that I read. In fact, New York Times had to let go of Jonathan Martin just so they can afford to pay my king. That's how dope she is. They had to give her <laughs> a bunch of extra dollars. No, shout out to Jay Martin and Maya King. I love you so much. Thank you for joining the Bukhari Sellers podcast. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me again.